0: Welcome to First Up. It is Rapare, that's Thursday. And it's September. Yes, the first day of it. Coming up, Europe and the world mourn Mikhail Gorbachev. Probably in Russia, not so much. Uh, after a tsunami of opposition, the government does a U turn on a proposal to tax fees on KiwiSaver funds. Finance Minister Grant Robertson is with us to uh, talk about the U turn and if a change to the green light COVID setting is on the horizon. And 23. Day 23 of the lockout and counting, Kabaro's ST toilets, paper mill workers count the cost of industrial action. I've
1: been in the mill for about just under six months, got full time just before we got locked out and got a young one on the way and yeah,
0: it's been a struggle. Kia Welcome to Thursday's First Up. We begin this morning in the UK. Just before we came to air, I spoke with our UK correspondent, Ellie Jane. mario, Nathan. OK, so tell me this. For the first time ever, the Queen won't be in London to appoint uh, the new Prime Minister. Tell us, where is this going to take place?
2: So this is going to take place in Balmoral up in Scotland. And I mean, we don't want to go too far into the leadership contest again. We'll save that for next week because it's much of the same at the moment, except for the fact that it's been announced today that the new prime minister will have to make that journey up to Balmoral for a meeting with the Queen. Um, so this was announced by the palace. It's been confirmed by um, Downing Street as well. Boris Johnson will also have to travel up to the Queen's Scotland home as he steps down next week. And then either Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss will have to head up too. Um, So it's more to do with that kind of ceremonial changing of government. So we'll talk a little bit, we can talk a little bit more about that. But when Parliament, uh, when a new Prime Minister comes in, they have to almost go to the Queen and she asks them if they're ready to form a uh, government she wouldn't say no or she wouldn't stop them or anything like that but it's part of the traditional handover of power so she's been uh, on the throne for 70 years and I think this is the first time that this has happened that they've um, traveled to her so officially they're saying it's to um, to kind of keep the new prime minister's diary um, let them know what's coming up make it a make it set in stone so they know what's going to happen on Monday but it is a little little bit different from usual usually it's quite a speedy handover so um, Boris Johnson would make a speech he'd head over to see the Queen at Buckingham Palace which is sort of a five minute drive around the corner from Downing Street and then their successor would do the same as well that same journey round Downing Street to Buckingham Palace and um, this time though as with the whole of the the leadership race the whole of the run up to it it's going to take a little bit longer so the Queen's been in Scotland at Balmoral for the whole of the summer and I mean she's she She's 96. The palace have said she's uh, experiencing an episodic mobility issue, which is is what they've said, which means she won't be able to make that journey down to Buckingham Palace. And so that's why uh, next week, amongst all the other things that will be happening, there'll also be a couple of long train journeys or car journeys all the way up to Scotland uh, to see the Queen.
0: Ah, right now, um, just something that had happened. Uh, gee, when was this? It was a a few years ago, and I know it's it's emerged now that the ISIS bride, uh, Shamima Begum, hopefully I've pronounced that right, was helped to travel to Syria when she was fifteen by a Canadian spy. What else? What else do we know?
2: Yes. So a little bit of background to this. So Shamima Begum, she was a British schoolgirl. And when she was 15, she went to Syria um, with two of her friends who were also 15 and 16 to join um, Islamic State. And as you said, this was 2015. It was a huge story, and it still is a huge story and very um, contentious. So in 2019, uh, in northern Syria, she was found by a a British journalist and in that same year tried to return to the UK. There was uh, a big court case here, a big debate about how the the UK should be dealing with um, returning extremists. And also, I mean, it's still an ongoing case. There's lots of talk about citizenship as well. So the uh, Supreme Court ruled she'd be stripped of british citizenship and she and she was and so she's now 22 she's still in syria and still asking to be allowed to return to fight her case in the uk the british government have said she won't be allowed they've said she doesn't have citizenship and because of this new this new stuff that's coming to light her her lawyers are challenging this removal of her citizenship and saying she's a, a trafficking victim, so that's a, a bit of the background. And then the news today, though, is uh, it's a BBC story, and it's a part of a, a documentary that's coming out today as well, which is talking about how she was able to enter Syria in the first place. And they're saying she was smuggled into Syria, as you said, by a Canadian intelligence uh, agent. So this this was a man who was smuggling people into Syria with the um, with the idea of joining Islamic State at the time, and he was also giving intelligence about uh, Islamic State and details of the people he was smuggling. So they say photos, um, videos, information to Canadian intelligence agencies. Um, There's also part of it too saying that he applied for Canadian citizenship and he said that um, he was doing this, he was passing on this information with the idea that that would um, be part of it. So that's that's what's come out today. That's the new part of this and we're going to have to see how that unfolds in the course.
0: Yeah, that's our correspondent in the UK, Ali J. It's ten past five, you're listening to First Up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. Always keen for your feedback, so we've got uh, a lot of uh, emails going around, we've got messages up at work. It is uh, Random Acts of Kindness Week. So I want to know what's what's the, the, the latest bit of kindness that's happened to you? Or that you've seen? Or that you've thought, oh that was nice? Um... Yeah just wondering wondering if you got that there as well or have you done something as well and I suppose it's one of those once you've done it it's a bit like you know celebrities with charity heard don't like to talk about it but if there's been some kindness come your way or you've sent some out into the world let us know about it 2101 or email us first up at rnc.co. Inset. Yeah, the, uh, the world is remembering Mikhail uh, Gorbachev, who died yesterday at the age of 91. Gorbachev, of course, the last leader of the Soviet Union and the man seen as responsible for ending the Cold War. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg looks back at Mr Gorbachev's life.
3: The world had never seen anyone quite like Mikhail Gorbachev, a Soviet leader who actually smiled oh, and who achieved almost pop star status in the West for ending the Cold War. Before he came along, Soviet leaders didn't tend to stick around long. With Kremlin old-timers coming and going in quick succession, the USSR was looking more like a cemetery than a superpower. But in 1985, the youthful Gorbachev took charge and tried to reinvigorate the Soviet Union with perestroika. At home, there were Western-style walkabouts. Abroad, he charmed an iron lady and a US president. Together, Gorbachev and Reagan slashed their nuclear arsenals. With a reformer in the Kremlin, Eastern Europe saw a chance to break free from Moscow. In 1989, the Berlin Wall came crashing down. Crucially, Gorbachev refused to intervene, to prop up. The Iron Curtain. была
1: зрения такая вот так. Без крови. Не допустить, чтобы огромное дело, немцев, нас Europe,
4: It
3: was Mikhail Gorbachev who
5: became the terminator of the 20th century, who ended the Cold War. Who and the domination of the Soviet Union over the Central and Eastern Europe. He dismantled this domination in the most willing and peaceful way. He let them go.
3: Back home, though, there were ethnic conflicts, economic chaos, even an attempted coup by communist hardliners. It collapsed, but soon after, so did the Soviet Union. Many Russians still blame Gorbachev for letting a superpower slip away. Uh, Anatoly Adamishin thinks that's unfair. He was deputy foreign minister under Mikhail Gorbachev. He was a great reformer who used peaceful means. Gorbachev showed that you can live a good life in this world, a peaceful life, without wars. Today, Vladimir Putin sent a telegram to Mikhail Gorbachev's family expressing his condolences. But these two leaders are polar opposites. Gorbachev was someone who tried to open up his country, give people more freedom, freedom of speech, freedom to criticize the authorities. Under Vladimir Putin, critical voices are being silenced. On the streets of Moscow, opinion was divided. It was a big mistake that the USSR fell apart, Victor says, and that Gorbachev failed to save it. I respected him, says Marina. To me, he represented hope and freedom. I'm grateful to him. As for Gorbachev's legacy, much of that has been destroyed. The arms race and geopolitical tension are back Gorbachev will be remembered for at least having tried to end the rivalry between East and West. But I will remember him for this. After one interview, he'd invited me to play his piano while he sang the favourite songs of his late wife. It was a surreal but special moment that showed the warm, human side of the Russian leader, who'd struck a chord with millions around the world. Steve Rosenberg
0: reporting there. It's a quarter past five here in New Zealand when you listen to RNZ National. Me, on first up here, Nathan Radity. Russia has once again shut off gas supplies to Europe as Ukraine fights back, launching an offensive aimed at winning back some of the territory lost to Russia since the invasion began six months ago. Joining me now from Sweden is Dr Anita Purcell-Sherland. Kia ora, Anita. How are you? Fine, thank you. falava. Okay, so while while obviously the world there remembers Mikhail uh, Gorbachev, we just heard some of it there, Russia cutting off the gas supplies to Europe again.
5: Yeah, Russia's state-owned energy giant Gazprom has again suspended gas deliveries through the so-called Nord Stream 1 pipeline Germany. Now the reason for the shutdown is maintenance which will last for three days and and was given at short notice. The German government has called the claim as a pretense and that Russia is using gas as a weapon. The latest shutdown will disrupt European efforts to stockpile for winter. And since invading Ukraine, Russia has cut off completely supply to Bulgaria, Denmark, Finland, the Netherlands and Poland while reducing flow via other pipelines to other EU countries.
0: Mm. Let, let, let's keep it up around that region there. I see Ukrainian forces getting a little bit tricky on the battlefield. Tell us about the decoys and the tactics they're using.
5: Well, according to the Washington Post, Ukraine is reportedly using wooden decoys of advanced US rocket systems to trick Russia into wasting its missiles on them. Now, based on interviews with senior US and Ukrainian officials, as well as photos of the replicas, the Washington Post reports that the decoy versions of the US-supplied rocket launcher systems drew at least 10 Russian-caliber cruise missiles. Now, um, the experts say that Western-supplied rocket systems have been crucial in Ukraine's successes in stopping Russian forces, and the latest report appears to further highlight some of the ways Ukraine uses to safeguard its weapons supplied, um, Western supplied weapons. Now, the reported use of rocket system decoys also points to Ukraine's readiness to use unorthodox tactics in its fight against an army that outguns it on the battlefield.
0: Yeah, well, I guess when you are so heavily outgunned, you've you've got to be innovative, don't you? in, in everything there, um, you, you know, absolutely. Yeah, the, the weather going around—it's really weird. One of those. It's like, oh, it's. Too terrible that there's all these heat waves and stuff, but there's a good thing. Um, no, tell me about this, though. This severe drought in Spain uh, it has revealed some prehistoric underwater monuments.
5: Well Spain's reservoirs have plunged to 36% um, of normal capacity but in the Extremadura region the receding waters of Valdeciñuelas reservoir has revealed a prehistoric stone circle dubbed the Spanish Stonehenge now it's a circle of dozens of megalithic stones and is believed to date back to 5000 BC it was discovered in 1926 but the area was flooded in 1963 when the reservoir was built in the north Eastern region of Catalonia, the receding waters have exposed the ruins of an 11th century church and the usually submerged village of Sant Roma de Sal, which was flooded in the 1960s when a dam was built nearby
0: yeah hey um I've I've been uh, watching uh, videos some friends sent from some from Canada about a month ago of the horrific sized hailstones just smashing a car and its windows and all that so Anita I, I thought something horrible might happen and I see a terrible story here in Spain a toddler has died after being hit by a giant hailstone
5: yeah she she died after being struck on the head, um, which caused havoc in uh, Catalonia and northeastern Spain. They were basically fist sized hailstones up to 10 centimeters in diameter, and it rained down on, on um, Catalonia on Tuesday, particularly in an area around the village of La Bisbal d'Emporta. Around 50 other people suffered broken bones and bruisings from the large hailstones. And according to Spain's meteorological agency Meteocat, the hailstones were the biggest recorded in two decades in Catalonia, and parts of Catalonia remained on storm alert
0: overnight. Oh, it's a horrible, horrible story. And finally, uh, tell us about this Green MP in France who's um, in a bit of a pickle for barbecue bashing.
5: Yes, Sandrine Rousseau is the leading figure in France's Green Party and is a self-declared eco-feminist. Now, in order to draw attention to the impact of meat eating on climate change, she said that the country needed to change mentally to the point where eating steak cooked on a barbecue is not a symbol of virility. Now, the 50-year-old former academic said men ate twice as much red meat as women in the country, and her statements drew criticism from other politicians, telling her to stop de- constructing French men, or that men eating more meat than women is nature and not virilism. One far-right lawmaker called Julien Odul said he will continue his Cro-Magnon diet based on French meat in reference to carnivorous cave-dwelling early humans found in southwest France.
0: That's a good name for a restaurant, Cro-Magnon. Love it. Uh, thank you very much. Dr Anita Purcell-Sherland, who joins us every week out of Sweden. <music> It's 20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarere and you're here listening to First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, the government's U-turn on a proposal to tax the fees on KiwiSaver funds. Finance Minister Grant Robertson joins us and plus we go to Kaurau as uh, locked out pulp and paper mill workers count the cost of no income for a third week on the trot. Our chance to catch up on news from regional New Zealand now. This morning we're here from Mid-Canterbury with the Local Democracy Reporting Program's Jonathan Leesk told me local Labour and national MPs are supporting a second bridge for Ashburton. But, as we know, there's a massive funding shortfall.
1: So we've got a, a local Labour's Joe Luxon, the obviously Rangitata MP. She's all for it. And uh, Nicola Greg is actually from McEnterbury. She's the salon MP and she's currently the key MP for Covering Mid cambry they are both in support of the bridge, but obviously it's the, the two at the top: Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Grant Robertson, who'll be the ones that'll decide whether they empty some some of the coffers to get the bridge over the line. How short?
0: How short it. are you? Like, how how short is the money, or how much funding do you think will be needed?
1: Well, the the council's original estimate was thirty six million, so they put aside seven and a half million dollars. And then the new business case, uh, which is, it makes it more than just a bridge, it actually goes a little bit further and there's roundabouts and all sorts involved, it actually comes to the grand total of $113.6 million. So if a Waka fund half of that and the council's 7.5 is between 48 and $36 million that they need to come up with somewhere. And the hope is that Grant Robertson will splash a little bit of the budget in uh, that direction and get the thing going.
0: Well, I mean, you know, bridges is one thing, but as well as that, you, you know, you've got to get around roading and stuff. I understand quite a bit of roadworks uh, on the books there in Ashburton. How are things there out on the roads when you're driving around? Yeah, so anyone around town,
1: potholes is the first thing that they'll tell you is the biggest problem in the district. Right, um, and Obviously, we've just had the weirdest... July on record, so the roads are in a bit of a state of ruin. I and mean, It's an old roading network, and there's plenty to be done. One of the council roading managers estimated they've got about nine years worth of rehabilitation on the books as it stands, and that's based on how much they can do per year at the moment, which is about eight kilometres, and that's with the amount of funding they get. So the only solution is more funding, whether that's more money from the government or more from the ratepayers' pocket. It's the only way to get the the road's fixed, but yeah. Uh, yeah, there's some, certain areas where you have to play a bit of dodgems to get around.
0: <laughs> so and just can you just educate me about these roads? What's the normal traffic on these roads? Are these like a daily car sort of road, or have we got sort of trucks on, on, <laughs> well, the, on a lot of these, or a bit of everything?
1: A bit of everything. The the two main roads that are sort of the problems is former State Highway 72, now known as Inland Route 72, so it's lost its state highway designation, but it hasn't lost the amount of traffic, which there's one particular councillor who will tell you that's his, the bane of his existence, is the fact that they're having to fund uh, that tourist road, as he calls it.
0: Yeah.
1: So yeah, they there's still, I've got high levels of traffic, a lot of heavy trucks and that sort of thing along the, those two main big problem roads, and then the rest of the district is sort of it's a fun little bits and pieces patching up there, the rest of the district is sort of falling behind because it's, it's the biggest roading network in the country and uh, I think we're well down on the population side of things, so the, yeah. the pot of money isn't as big as it needs to be to get it all done.
0: Right, just uh, uh, switching to the waterways there as well, a uh, thing about the fish screens, what's going on with the fish screens?
1: Well, fish grains are there to keep the, the fish, obviously, out of the, the stock water channels in the district, and the, the council sort of signalled their intention that they're sort of redundant assets now, apart from there's a few they're going to try and keep open for their uh, ecological benefit, but most of them are no longer required because, obviously, irrigation schemes uh, use, uh, they suck it up from the, the groundwater and it's a lot more beneficial than having open water races. So ECAN, and to get the consent for those stock water races they needed to put fish screens in back in 2015 so they were sort of in in conversation for a few years saying oh we're, we're going to close them we're going to close them we're going to close them and Ecan and finally had enough and said we'll make a decision or we'll uh, slap you with a big infringement
0: huh. <laughs> um Yeah, well, I can see there's there's plenty happening down there as well. As I was reading through, I saw a familiar name. Uh, This might be a little bit cheeky to ask, but I know that Hamish Riak ran the Crusaders really well. You can't lend him to the country to just sort out New Zealand rugby at the moment, could you? And we'll we'll fix a few potholes?
1: No, we're quite happy with him uh, steering the council ship. He's doing a stellar
6: job there. Hmm. Like sands through the hourglass,
0: so are the days of our lives. Okay, it's the 1st of September. It's the day that we like to call this one. There are some uh, birthdays here of a couple of famous people. It depends what generation you're in, but Zendaya is is her name currently, if you're going who. So just think of this. This is, uh, you know, Generation Z, or, or everyone at school or whatever. This is their, their Beyonce, their Raquel Welsh, or whoever, um, actress. Uh, Zendaya Coleman, born this day 26 years ago. She's in the Spider-Man films, if you're wondering who that is. Uh, a woman, uh, well, a, a baby girl, I should say, called Gloria Fayaro, was born this day, 65 years ago, in Havana, Cuba. Her family fled. Of course, they fled from uh, Fidel Castro, and uh, made it across to uh, Miami. She changed her name to Gloria Estefan, and then Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine started up, and it was coming, everybody do that, Conga. Uh, she's 65 years old today. On this day in 1939, Germany invaded Poland and that's the start of World War II. On this day in 1951, Australia, New Zealand and the United States went, hey, cool acronym, let's be ANZUS and the ANZUS Pact was formed. One year later, in 1952, Life Magazine published Ur- Ernest Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea, won the Pulitzer the next year. And in 1987, I remember this being a lot in the news when I was a teenager, uh, Lorraine Cohen was sentenced to death by a asian judge for heroin trafficking and of course on appeal her sentence was commuted to life imprisonment and on this day in 1968 the very first u.s school committed exclusively to training circus clowns was established in florida um, i think the school bus was just one of those small red cars about 40 of them got out of it at the time and that was the entrance exam in their little squeaky shoes and that is the day of our life we call the first of september
1: trying to say you're trying to say let's get down to business it's business time it's business
0: it's business time And joining us from our business team is Mr. Giles Beckford. Cura Giles Cura to you Nathan Hey Giles I was just thinking yesterday that the the Kiwi Saver uh, fees GST sort of I I imagine it's a small furore because it lasted about half a day. And I saw lots of headlines about, you know, cash grabs and and that. And nowhere did I see, you know, about how much money would that be each year on like an average KiwiSaver fund?
6: Well, I've done some back of the envelope calculations. And this is based on uh, figures in the most recent Morningstar survey of KiwiSaver funds. Uh, I'm looking at the average holding of about $27,000. The average fee uh, on that, uh, on the management of that, was uh, 0.69%. So that's worth about $185, $186 a year. And add on top of that, perhaps another $20 for the membership fee uh, of your KiwiSaver fund. So uh, all up, take 15% GST on that. And it's worth about $28 a year on the average fee with the average um, uh, holding. The more aggressive that your fund is, uh, the more active the management that your fund might be, um, the fees are usually higher. um, So you might end up paying perhaps 40 bucks a year in GST. That's now. Of course, you've got to then think, well, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years' time, who's to know, you know, the balances will be bigger, Hmm. the fees may be bigger as well. But um, it seemed to be uh, a lot of hassle uh, for... um, Perhaps not a hell of a lot of money in, in the short term at least. Um, no. But, you know, the political egg on face um, was more than enough to uh, scare the hell and have a, the decision reversed. Gone by lunchtime, I think it was. As, uh, yeah, yeah. And I was joking with Corin in the studio uh, yesterday morning, and we were each betting about when the policy would be uh,
0: thrown out the window. <laughs> and I, I think he wins by about 15 minutes. They got you there. I, thinking, I thought it was thousands. Okay, so 28. All right. Hey, um, now, this is interesting. House prices are uh, becoming affordable at the fastest rate in the last 12 years or sliding, well, sliding, depending on where you live, depending you know. on where you live and how much money you're selling
6: got, and if you can get a uh, a mortgage. Latest numbers from CoreLogic, and these are probably the most authoritative numbers uh, that we can base on, show that uh, house prices have fallen about three and a half percent in the past three months. That's starting to get to. Uh, the fastest rate seen since August 2008, which is when the global financial crisis started to overwhelm us. And that's when annual values would, went down more than 4%. The saving grace on this one, of course, is that a lot of it's on paper, um, People have got jobs, uh, and so they're servicing their mortgages. We've had out this morning as well at the same time uh, the latest credit report from the uh, credit reporting agency, Centrix. And they're showing that people, they may be falling a bit behind on car loans and the buy-now-pay-later liabilities. But mortgage arrears, uh, they are rock bottom. So people clearly with jobs prioritizing where they're spending uh, and being you know, pretty savvy about it. So, you know, a lot of these numbers are on paper. You know, it doesn't matter if you're not selling your house mm. in the meantime. If you are buying, it may be that, you know, this is working to your advantage if you're getting those um, that mortgage finance. Um, so we'll wait and see. But, you know, as I say, there's a lot of, uh, lot of numbers, and it's very easy to scaremonger about this, and it's very easy to over write uh, what the actual effect of the housing downturn is but if people feel less uh, wealthy the view is generally that they pull their
0: spending in so there are flow-on effects down the economy yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much, uh, Giles Beckford, who did some maths on the run for me this morning. Thank you very much. You can hear more from the business team today on Morning Report at 10 to 7. If you're shopping your New Zealand dollar about you can buy the following 61.35 US cents, 89.36 Australian cents, ooh, a bit of a drop for the euro, 60.95 euro cents, uh, 52.67 British pence, 4.22 yuan, 85.08 Japanese yen. And if you are heading to Mr. Gorbachev's funeral in Moscow, your New Zealand dollar buys you 30. Thirty-six point nine seven Russian rubles it is 25 to 6 and normally when you think of India and Pakistan the first thing that comes to mind is rivalry but they say nothing brings people together like a tragedy Uh, with one-third of Pakistan submerged underwater and 33 million people impacted by the catastrophic floods the Sikh community of New Zealand has joined hands with Pakistani diaspora uh, to help raise relief funds. Daljeet Singh is a spokesperson for major Sikh temples in Aotearoa. He told me why they came up with the idea of a flood fundraiser this weekend.
4: Look, if there's anything happened in anywhere in the world, we always come forward to assist and um, we just know knowing that during the last weekend that the flood have caused lots of stress in Pakistan where 1,100 pupils already been killed and uh, nearly 33 millions are impacted with the flood. So that's where we actually joined the hand with the Pakistan Association to help them to raise a fund for the victims back in Pakistan.
0: So look, normally when I think of the the Sikh religion, I think of it being based in India, and I think of India and Pakistan as being rivals. But I mean, this is part of the Sikh religion, isn't it? To to get out and
4: help? What What is it uh, about you that, that makes you want to help? Absolutely, because the in Pakistan um, it, not many Sikhs are living there, but we are not here to serve the a particular community. We are here to serve the humanity and the Sikh pupils Sikh people already been taught that wherever anything happened, come forward and assess them. so regardless it happened in Pakistan, India, Philippines, Samoa. We uh, always raise the funds, helping them in the difficult times. Right. So uh, tell us, how
0: much money have you managed to raise so far?
4: Uh, The appeal will start actually from tomorrow onwards. We haven't actually put the appeal yet, but so far just the uh, few members already uh, have raised nearly $3,000 with us and uh, we know by this Sunday that we are pretty sure it's going to be big fundraising for uh, pupils are in need.
0: Okay, so tell us about this fundraising function.
4: Yes, um, the, while the Pakistan Association doing actually their own, the Sikh community actually also opening their own accounts to uh, raise the funds. And then we will give it to the uh, pupils um, uh, for the Pakistan associations to help them back in Pakistan. So uh, we just joined the other communities to helping Pakistan brothers and sisters, Pakistani so, brothers. And sisters, yeah. So, so what happens at, at the fundraiser? People's coming to the uh, Sikh Gurdwaras around New Zealand, everybody will be appealed on during the weekend to assist and um, every management of the Gurdwara will help us to raise the funds. And uh, most of our community are either the financial members of the uh, local Gurdwaras or they are regular attendee to the Gurdwara. So they always are coming forward to help, do, especially in these kind of disasters. they always happy to assist.
0: So excuse my ignorance on that. Because um, I'm not very well educated on it, but when when you say the, the gurdwara, is is that like the the temple or the the worship places that we see?
4: Yes, yes. Uh, in in, uh, in Sikhism, uh, it's a like we uh, call Sikh gurdwaras, uh, same like uh, the church and temples. Temples um, world, some people using it as a temple as well, but uh, it's called gurdwaras. Ah, yes.
0: oh, okay, and and that's where that's where the the fundraising happens on the Saturday. So can can just anybody
4: stop in? Yes, that's right. Saturday and Sunday, two days during the weekend. Any Gurdwaras around New Zealand will do that.
0: That was Daljeet Singh. 21 minutes to six, I'm Nathan Rarere and you are here listening to First Up on RNZ National. So between now and the end of the programme, Finance Minister Grant Robertson appears on the show. Obviously we asked him about that extraordinary u turn yesterday on the uh, tax fees on KiwiSaver funds and also we go to Kawarau with 145 SET mill workers remaining locked out. <laughs> Twenty degrees in Christchurch today, and as the morning report team of Wellington called that all last summer a heatwave. Uh, Susie Ferguson,
7: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
7: <laughs> with me now, Kiara. Hello. I was Kiara. I'm um, well, thank you. I was remarking to um, the fella yesterday, looking at the weather forecast on the six o'clock news. I was like, twenty-one degrees at Dunedin Airport. Like <laughs> this is winter. What's, What's going, going on? on?
0: Oh boy, uh, apparently just, yeah, you know, I don't know, the whole world's drying up. They're discovering cities at the bottom of lakes in Europe. Once we've discovered Atlantis, that's when I think, you know, the, the, the water levels have really gone down too far. So you know, it could happen. Yeah, I know. You it can't rule it out, can you? Oh, it might oh. do. I might find those um, keys that I dropped uh, in the lake. But anyway, we we'll are carry on. What's oh. happening on um, Morning Report this morning, Susie? Good to hear your well, voice, gonna- by the way.
7: Oh, thank you. Well, we are going to be hearing more about the situation with former New Zealand soldier Dominic Abelin's body. We're hearing it is definitively in Russian hands. Uh, We will have more on that just after seven o'clock. Also, the government learning a pretty tough lesson around KiwiSaver. We'll be talking to Nicola Willis, finance spokesperson of the National Party on that. Also pretty interesting uh, around the local elections and quite a lot of the candidates standing Uh, are linked to uh, conspiracy theories. And there's a new campaign out to try to educate voters. So we're hearing from Facts Aotearoa on that. Also, New Zealand Cricket says it's confident there is not going to be a mass exodus of black caps to these high-paying T20 leagues. But is that the case? We will certainly be discussing that further on Morning Report. It's all coming up after six.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, well, hey, uh, a worker at the Essity Paper Mill in Kaurau who only joined the company recently says his financial situation is desperate as he enters his third week with no pay. Brooke Collier is one of 145 mill workers locked out since August the 9th after the union rejected the company's proposed 3% pay offer. Both parties enter two days of negotiation today in a bid to reach an agreement. But they can't come soon enough for Mr Collier. Our reporter Leonard Powell is in Kaurau. Locked out Essity
8: worker Brooke Collier and his partner are expecting a baby later this year. He says the timing couldn't be worse to be out of pocket.
1: I've been in the mill for about just under six months. Got full time just before we got locked out and
8: got a young one on the way and yeah it's been a struggle. Collier is one of 145 workers who have been locked out of the mill for 23 days now due to a union disagreement with Essity over pay increases. It's been a desperate time. We brought our first house last year and all of that stuff piles up
1: and obviously getting locked out for long as we have, not getting paid is is a real struggle and the decision we made for me just to be the one working while my partner is off pregnant is... And with all this happening is making it
8: very hard for us. Kawaro local Bill George has been with the company for close to 20 years. And whilst Essity claims workers can earn up to $120,000 a year, Mr George claims most actually take home between $60,000 and $80,000, depending on their responsibility. Although Concede's shift work and overtime during COVID were a boost. At his suburban home, he tells RNZ he's the sole breadwinner in his family. With the added responsibility of looking after two disabled grandchildren, Mr George says the community has rallied to help out workers like himself. I just got a food parcel dropped off today. And I, I didn't even want to take any food parcels because I know there's other people out there worse than me, so...
1: But they said, no, no, you know, we'll drop off a food parcel. Said, oh, no, it's okay. No, no, drop it off.
8: So, yeah, so I'm quite reluctant to even uh, use my food parcel. I might drop it off to someone else. <laughs> On the streets of Kawaro, Merry children flood the streets at the end of the day, some heading for the hot pools. Locals smile and say hello, but behind the Bay of Plenty Hospitality, there's a frustrated feeling on the ground.
5: With everything that's going on with the whole COVID situation and our community, and then the mill had already shut down, you know, parts of that, you're already that's disadvantaging an already vulnerable and disadvantaged community. And then to do that, that's just dirty. It's absolutely dirty. My... Sister-in-law's partner, he was working there and they just haven't been working for a while now. I know they're struggling. They um, had to use some of their savings from their like house deposit stuff.
0: Good on them. Of course they want to get up
6: with the living. It's silly if they don't.
7: I think it's kind of stupid that they
9: were striking in the first place because I think they put off more more than they can shoot just because, I mean, that... Worldwide, it's a, you know, it's a worldwide company, it's real big and so it's more worthwhile than shutting down than paying them so I think it was kind of dumb for them to
7: hold out that long but yeah, it is what it is I guess.
8: Tane Phillips from the pulp and paper union is in town to go into bat for those locked out. Negotiations with Essity begin today and he's hoping to find some common ground.
6: We're going there with open minds to try and get a uh, deal done. Uh, we hope that the company are coming with the same mindset that after a couple of days we walk away with a deal that's accepted, acceptable to
8: both parties. This worker, who asked to remain unnamed, has worked at the mill for 38 years. He's one of a small crew still at work maintaining the facility, though paper production has come to a halt. He says in situations like these, no one comes out on top. No one's going to win, but they need to get back and start negotiating because the longer they leave it, the more... Both sides lose. He says the demand for toilet paper through lockdowns was unprecedented and the workers felt they had the rough end of the stick. Through COVID, we've we've just been flat out and, and we've been basically running the
1: mill without any staff people there. They all stayed at home and looked after themselves and worked from home and, and were doing Zoom meetings every day and that sort of thing where we all had to come in and face the interaction with everybody else and taking the risks but we kept the paper coming out and that was quite critical because if you looked at the news
8: even in Australia everyone was panicked buying because they thought they were going to run out of paper. He says despite the situation everyone is hoping things can be resolved. I hope it sorts itself out, it's a really good place to work. I've been there 38
1: years and You don't stay at a place 38 years. All the guys that work there are good guys. They're all excellent guys to work
8: with. And it's always been a really good place to work. And it's it's sad it's had to come to this. Bill George felt it was important that the truth was heard and is glad the story has been picked up by the public. Without the public uh, support, they wouldn't even come to the table because we've been going to the table the last few times and they're just
1: all they've said is 3%. Every year I think it's I think it's fifteen hundred dollars in the hand a year, and that's it. They won't even budge, so you know at the, at, at the moment I'm just happy that
8: it's been out there in the public and that the public pressures come to help us you know and still in good spirits despite the uncertainty, he has one other thank you oh, and thanks to ANZ out there too for my mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Well, (laughs) I thought I'd throw that in there. (laughs) Nobody was at Essity's Kawaro office when RNZ visited, but in a statement, its local general manager, Peter Hockley, said the company was keen to find a solution. He said it was in nobody's interest for the plant to be idle, and Essity's offer of 14.7% over three years was close to the union's claim. But the union had refused
0: to budge, which had blocked progress. Essity begins two days of negotiations today. That's Leonard Powell reporting there. It's 10 to 6. Well, the government's taken an embarrassing u turn on the plans to charge GST on the fees on your KiwiSaver, with Revenue Minister David Parker abandoning the idea less than 24 hours after first announcing it. When I spoke to Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson about the saga, I asked him if yesterday was, you know, maybe Labour's most embarrassing day. Oh, look, I don't
9: don't know if I'd characterise it that way. I mean, the situation that we found ourselves was that we had done some work, which actually the National Party had started in 2017, about how to make sure that the different types of managed funds were being treated consistently when it came to the GST on the fees that those fund managers charge. And without getting into all the ins and outs of it, depending on the size of fund and the type of fund, people were paying different amounts of GST. So Some work was done, a bit of consultation was done out with people in the community. There definitely were mixed views within the the managed fund community and, and we'd come to the decision that making it all consistent across the board would be the right thing to do. Obviously, what happened was that firstly... Some of the smaller fund managers who had been quite supportive of us moving to a different regime weren't continuing their support. And it was starting to become clear that people were seeing this as somehow or other undermining their KiwiSaver. And that is absolutely not what we wanted. You know, we wanted to make sure that people continue to have really high levels of confidence in KiwiSaver. We're very proud of it. You know, Labor started it. We've continued to support KiwiSaver. So when we looked at all of those things and put them together, we just felt that it was time to take. Take away any doubt there for anybody and decide not to go ahead with that policy. It was part of a wider tax bill, which obviously we will get back to the other elements of, but not that one.
0: So when the Revenue Minister, David Parker is talking about that he's going to you know, put this forward, I imagine he checks it with all of you. Did no one foresee this kind of reaction or did no one say, hang on, that's a bad idea? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously it's a
9: piece of policy work and therefore a number of us have been involved in it and then it goes to Cabinet and Cabinet looks at it and makes its decision. It was among a number of other matters, but that's not to say that we didn't discuss it. I guess what we were trying to do was do the right thing in terms of levelling the playing field among the different providers. It would also be fair to say that what we're talking about here are the are the fees that are charged by providers and we've been working quite hard to try to bring those fees down and um, we obviously did a bit of work with the default KiwiSaver providers where one of the things we were really looking for was a more reasonable um, fee structure. We'd rather that the level of fees people were paying was based on the sort of competitive advantage of it rather than around the question of, of tax. But you know, when we did this work, we knew that there were mixed views, but it would be fair to say that the reaction was swift from folk people didn't like seeing anything that might affect their KiwiSaver, even if this wasn't a direct tax on their KiwiSaver. It really becomes a question then, would all the providers automatically pass on the GSTN fees onto people? There were mixed views again on that as well, but it's quite clear that it was starting to undermine confidence in a scheme that's really important to us, and so we decided not to go ahead
0: with it. When you do a debrief, because, you know, sports coaches, things like that, they do debriefs and stuff. You know, as you said, it was only a fee on the, you know, it was a, a GST on the fees, but it was easily painted as a tax grab. I know that Nicola Willis will be feeling pretty happy about this because they're claiming a victory on this for make, for making you, you backpedal. The, re, the regrets and the way it was put forward, how was how, how that for you? you know, as you say, we
9: will always take a look at the way we do things, and I think, you know, it would be fair to say that perhaps there could have been more done to explain the rationale and to say, you know, how this could work in terms of people's you know, Kiwi Savers, and the fact that some of the things that ended up being said just weren't correct, but that's the kind of thing we can reflect on but ultimately the the reason for it was frankly good public policy and as I say the actual work on trying to get a more consistent GST treatment for managed funds started under national, we carried it on there was con- public consultation but ultimately things like the management of an issue, yeah sure we always take a look at that and I'm sure we'll, we'll look at this and think perhaps there were some things we could have done to help frame up what it was but look in the end we don't want people to have any doubt what about their kiwi saver, it is important to many many New Zealanders. We totally appreciate that, and and that's why um, we've backed away from it.
0: Well, let's talk about current funds. I know there's 145 mill workers in Carbedo who, uh, you know, they're in the strike action here with with the Swedish owned SIT, and now SIT is saying, "No, nah, we're going to sue you." <laughs> what, what's what is or, or what will or what can the government do to help resolve that industrial uh, dispute involving those 145 mill workers? Yeah, look,
9: it is pretty hard in the sense that it's a dispute between workers and their employer and the employer is not the government or even directly connected to the government in any way. And so it is hard, as as Michael Wood, the workplace relations minister, has said this week, we just want people back at the table. Industrial relations come from people talking to each other, not from the kind of lockout approach that we're seeing at the moment. And so just urge everybody to get back to the table and have the discussions that are needed to make sure we we can get everyone back to work.
0: COVID numbers are dropping, thank goodness. Do you think the country's ready to move to green in a couple of weeks?
9: Well, what we're doing is what we said we'd do, which is get ourselves through winter and then do do a reassessment of our framework it is really encouraging to see where the numbers have reached. And, you know, the number that I really noticed today was that we'd, we went under 300 people in hospital, very, just a small handful of people in, and still in ICU. And having got through winter to the point that we have now is, is a great tribute to, you know, our health team, to the frontline health workers who've done a really, really good job. And, and I think New Zealanders can be pleased that although it's been, you know, dreadful for those people who have had friends and family who've, who've had COVID and have either got very sick or have died, as an overall country, we can actually still look at this and say, you know, we managed to get through that peak of winter We'll now reassess what we need as ongoing management tools for COVID, and that's what we said we're doing. As the prime minister indicated on Monday, we'll do that over the next few weeks.
0: Okay. Uh, finally, you know, look, um, we've seen the devastating floods in in Pakistan, but I also want to remember too our people at the top of the South Island there uh, who got hit with a lot of flooding. There's a lot of flood damaged roads around the country, especially State Highway One there uh, around Nelson and uh, Mangamuka Gorge. How, how much do you know? How much will it cost to fix that, and what can we do to help?
9: Look, there there isn't a final total yet, and that's really reflective of just the scale of the damage in the region, and and we do know that it's extensive. And we're seeing some roads reopening now, particularly around some parts of State Highway 6, which is great. But this, as everyone in the region has indicated, is not a short-term recovery. This is going to take a a significant amount of time. And we are working, obviously, via Waukutahi with the local authorities and communities to both open roads as quickly as we can. But then I think the big call for New Zealand here is the way we think about how we make sure we protect our our transport routes to the against these extreme weather events, you know, we're seeing more of them, and I think that is the reality of climate change. We've got a national adaptation plan out at the moment for consultation, and a big part of that is saying how do we protect our communities in areas where they, you know, are susceptible to flooding. So we'll deal with the immediate aftermath of this with our communities and get those roads back open. But there's a big long-term job for New Zealand now that you know
0: we're seeing so many more of these extreme weather events. That's the Deputy Prime Minister. Grant Robertson Tim wrote in during that saying KiwiSaver's is not like other funds you can't get, you can get money out except for a house purchase or if you're over 65 so the government can't talk about wanting consistency. Peter or my, Peter's upset. Uh, what a stupid comment yet again about Wellington's weather. Every summer parts of Wellington get temperatures above 30 and it's mean is very similar to Christchurch and about 2 to 4 degrees below Auckland. Hardly much difference. It undermines your entire credibility. Mm. Because if you are so wrong about this, then how can you rely on other comments? I'm switching off, says Peter. I'm Nathan Rarere, born in Wellington, Newtown. Thank you very much. I know what's up. Uh, hey, uh, Morning Report is next with Susie and Corrin. You're listening to a song that came out 39 years ago. Stay. Still going. It's going all night long. From all of us here at First Up. have yourselves a wonderful day. We're back in your ears are pop